let me give you my welcome this morning to Easter Sunday as we're celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know you've already said he is risen, he is risen indeed. And, and that's a great way to begin our service together with a reminder that our Lord is a risen Lord. You know, a few years back, I saw the movie Risen. It's a great movie, and maybe you saw it as well. But I love the storyline because it's a very fascinating storyline. The storyline was that Pontius Pilate had commissioned a Roman tribute in order to go find the body of Jesus because it had disappeared from the tomb in which it was laid. And the assumption was and the concern was that without the body of Jesus, the probability of people beginning to believe about a bodily resurrection would escalate because they had no body to look at that would confirm to them that he really did die and he really was still dead. And so in response to the command of Pilate, the tribute conducted a search to find the body of Jesus. And they looked in the normal places. First of all, they went down to the burial grounds or just the dumping grounds where the crucified bodies were thrown into a pit allowed to decay. And they looked down there and there was no body to be found. They started surveilling the other disciples and thinking that if they could follow them that they could probably find them leading them to Jesus, lead the body of Jesus, and so they started to follow them, and still that didn't help them at all. And then in the film, it appears that the tribute finds a break, or catches a break, and he sees Mary Magdalene scurrying through a door into an upper room. And he follows her, he pushes open the door, and he looks inside, and sure enough, he finds Jesus. I mean, it's a great scene in the movie, and I've actually got it for us to watch here. So just take a moment and, and watch this scene as he discovers Jesus after he thinks he's dead. Turn to camp. Sir? Tribune! Stand down. Look for me shortly. Tribune! Sir, we are close. I can feel I it. I don't need you for this. I don't need you.
welcome, Clavis. Come join us, brother. There are no enemies here. Thomas. Lord Thomas, where have you been? <laughs> Shh. I'm sorry. Sorry. Why are you sorry? Because, because I left you. Now, did you hear the question that he asked? It might have been a little hard to hear, so let me just repeat it to you. Here's what he said. How can this be? As he gazed across the room, he fell to the ground, his legs gave way, he looked at Jesus, and he said, how can this be? And why he asked that is because people who are crucified don't come back to life. People who are crucified stay crucified. In fact, dead people stay dead. And all of a sudden, he sees Jesus, who was crucified, sitting in the room alive, and it's beyond his understanding. And so he just sits down in disbelief and says, how in the world can it be that I'm seeing what I'm seeing? Well, can I suggest this morning that the same astonishment that this Roman tribute had when he saw Jesus Christ alive after he knew that he had been crucified is the same fear and astonishment and, and, and trembling that the disciples had when they saw Jesus Christ alive as well? I mean, in fact, when you come to the end of Mark's gospel as he wraps up his whole story about Jesus, we, in Mark 16, it actually ends beyond, the story ends beyond verse 8, but there's some understanding that it, at verse 8 might have been the real cutoff to the story. But verse 8 ends in a really odd way, and here's what it says. And they went out, talking about the three women who had gone to the tomb early in the morning to anoint the body with the spices they had, they had bought. They had gone to the marketplace after Jesus was crucified. They knew they, they needed myrrh. They knew they needed aloe, so they picked up those ingredients. They probably mixed it with some other spices, and now they're carrying that to anoint the body of Jesus. And so they're making their way to the tomb. And so when they got there, they saw that Jesus was gone, and so all that story, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And so it says that they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling and, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They were gripped by astonishment and fear. And the reason was because, again, they had no category of understanding what would explain what they were witnessing in that moment. 
They had no category and understanding that Jesus Christ could be raised from the dead. Because in their understanding, there would be a resurrection, but it would come at the end of the age when everybody would be resurrected from the dead. In fact, that's exactly what Martha says. Remember when Martha and Mary asked Jesus to hurry to their house because Lazarus was dying and if they could get there in time, he could heal Lazarus before he died. And so they're hoping Jesus would get there. Jesus delays four days and Lazarus has died. Four days in the tomb. The tomb is sealed up. And now when Jesus finally comes out of disappointment, Martha runs up to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now Mary's going to say the same thing. But Martha said it first. And Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And then she gave him her understanding of the resurrection because she said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That was her understanding. That was a Jewish understanding of the resurrection. The Jews believed in a resurrection of the dead, but they believed that it wasn't in their day. It was way off in the future at the end of history when God would raise everybody back to life. And so that's what they believed. In fact, where they got that probably was out of the book of Daniel. Because in the book of Daniel, Daniel receives a visit and and, uh, and, uh, uh, understanding from an angelic being and tells about the last days and what's going to happen in the last day. And in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel says this, or Daniel chapter 12 actually, says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, this is what Daniel's being told, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's an everlasting going to happen at the end. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So here's Martha's understanding of the resurrection, that it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen now. It's going to happen at the end of the age. Okay? And so when it came to the category of understanding that Jesus would rise from the dead in three days, it didn't make any sense to her because for Martha, it was outside the category of her understanding. And so just like the tribute who said, how can this be? Martha, and probably Mary as well, felt the same way. How in the world can it be that our brother could rise from the dead? But you know what? Three other women felt the same way about Jesus, though. I mean, the the three women who went to the tomb came away with the same understanding as, I can't believe what I just saw. How can this be? Let me just show you as Mark describes it in Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. 
See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Now, what was our big question? The big question was this, who's going to move the stone away? They knew that they couldn't do it themselves. They knew that they, they, they had no power to move as big a stone as it was. And they realized that we've got to have it moved away if we're going to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. And so they had no understanding that Jesus could be alive, no understanding that he could have risen from the dead. They believed that he was still dead. And so it's clear in their minds that the body of Jesus is still lying in the tomb. It's there. They just got to get past the stone to get at it. And, but when they get into the tomb, when they see that the stone has already been away, moved away, they're shocked that the stone has been rolled away. And according to John's gospel, when Mary sees the stone having rolled away, I mean, she just assumes the worst, and she just thinks, I got to go and tell Peter. Because I don't, I mean, 
Peter needs to know what's just happened. I got to go tell Peter. I don't, I don't know what to do about it, but Peter will know what to do about it. So I'm going to run. You, I don't know, care what you women do. I'm going to tell Peter what's, what just happened. And she leaves and she runs back to tell Peter. Now, when Peter hears that from Mary, he's surprised as well. How can this be? He tells John, John, I mean, listen to what Mary, or listen to what we just heard from Mary Magdalene. And, and so they run to the tomb. And because John's faster, he gets there first, but he's too afraid to go in. He sees the stone rolled away. He's too afraid to go in. And then Peter finally comes. He blasts past John. He goes in. He sees that the, the tomb is empty. John now comes in because Peter's there first. He sees the same thing, that the linen is there, but there's no body there. And they have an understanding that they didn't have before. And so they go in and they go back to tell the other disciples. Well, while that's taking place, while they're running to get there, I mean, Mary leaves the two women, she runs back, and while Mary is running to get Peter so he can come and see what's going on, these two women go into the tomb, and they look around. One of them is Mary, the mother of James, who is with James the Lesser, one of the disciples. The other is Salome, who's the mother of James and John, who is probably the aunt of Jesus, the sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and they go into the tomb, and when they get in the tomb, they look inside, and Mark tells us this, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And then he said to them, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, he is, who was crucified, he has risen. And literally, it, it, it reads it like this, he has been raised. With the whole point is that he didn't raise himself, but that God in his power raised him up. And so the idea is that the greatest manifestation of God's power is now being seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus gave himself over to his father, and his father raised him back up to life. And so it says, he has been raised. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And then Mark adds, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so instead of looking for Peter and doing what the the young man in the tomb told them to do out of fear. They simply kept quiet. Why? Because they couldn't believe what they're seeing. How can this be? You know, in fact, every one of them, every disciple felt the same thing. How in the world can this be? How could Jesus even suggest that he's going to be raised from the dead? And, and, and the fact is, matter, in every account of the gospel we have that talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not one of the disciples decided, you know what we need to do? We need to go look to see if Jesus really did rise from the dead. They didn't even believe it. And in fact, when Luke describes it in, in, Luke, in his gospel, he talks about how they were in the upper room, locked behind doors, fearful of, of those who were out to find them. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And they think he's a ghost. And so what does Jesus say? He says to them, look, here's my hands, here's my feet. It is I myself. It's me, you guys. It's me. And touch me and see. Ghosts don't have flesh and blood. As you see, I have flesh and blood. 
In fact, and then what Jesus actually does is what? This. He says, okay, just to help you settle your, your hearts down, you got something to eat? I'll take a piece of fish if you've got it. And he shares a mealtime with them, and then he goes. And still they trouble, have tr- trouble believing. I mean, they were joyful in what their eyes were showing them, but they were perplexed in what their minds were telling them. The point is, true to every gospel account, when it came to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, there was nothing in their teaching, there was nothing in their traditions, there was nothing in their training, there was nothing in their understanding that would cause them to believe that a Messiah would come back to life three days after he had died. They had heard Jesus teaching about it, they had heard it in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, but it was so far outside the category of their understanding, of their possibility of what could happen, that they simply could not believe. See, and I'm going to tell you this. I think this is why Mark wrote the gospel. I think this is why, this is the primary reason why Mark penned this gospel, because he understood that when we talk about a resurrected Jesus, nobody's going to believe that. Everybody's going to have, just like the disciples themselves, everybody's going to have trouble believing that. And so Mark wrote this gospel to help us get to know, as we've talked all through our whole series of the book of Mark, he's wanting it to help us get to know the real Jesus because he understands that the Jesus of our own imagination, the Jesus of our own creation, is not the real Jesus, and he'll have no power to change our lives as a real Jesus can. And so Mark is introducing us again to something about the real Jesus, and last week we saw that Jesus is a legitimate king. And he came into Jerusalem to the praises of the people acclaiming him to be their king. But it's just not enough to have Jesus as king. What Mark wants us to know is this, that he's the resurrected king. The greatest demonstration of his kingliness is his resurrection. He's the king who experienced the resurrection power of God in his life. And what Mark is going to show us is because he was raised, you and I are going to be experiencing the resurrection power in our lives as well. And that's what Mark is showing us. That's where his whole gospel is going. That Jesus is the resurrected king who came back to life in our age so that you and I can have the resurrection power working in our lives as well, just as it worked in Jesus' life. And the point is this, unless we believe in the resurrection, we don't even know the real Jesus. Unless we believe in the resurrected Jesus, we don't even belong to Jesus. See, what you and I believe about Jesus Easter morning is critical. It's the determinative factor of whether you and I are even in the faith. The only reason that you and I have resurrection hope is because Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Paul tells us that, in fact, here's what Paul says, he is the first fruits of all those who are being resurrected. He is the first of all those who will one day experience a resurrection through him and the life that he received when God the Father raised him up to newness of life. The same power, we sing about it, don't we? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's at work in each one of us. Now, here's what Paul, Mark does. Mark wants to show us how that, that working out of the power of God affects our lives now. And so he does an amazing thing. No other gospel writer does this. But Mark introduces us to prove that our resurrected Lord will bring us into resurrection power as well and to change our lives in a dramatic way 
Mark takes us to a, a young man who is in the scene. In fact, go back to Mark chapter 16, verse 5. Here's what Mark says. As they entered the tomb, these are those women, uh, Mary and Salome. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Now, we all understand, right, that when really the one that was in the tomb was an angel. I mean, the other gospel writers affirmed that there was an angel in the tomb that was talking to the, the women, and so it was an angel. But the question is, then, why doesn't Mark call this, this being in the tomb, this person in the tomb, an angel? Why does he call this person a young man? Well, let me suggest this, and, 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 and we're going to talk about some theological points that Mark is trying to make to, to help us understand what's going on in the resurrection. Let me suggest this. When Mark refers to the angel as a young man, what he's doing, he's using a literary technique to make a theological point to show how the power of the resurrection can change a person's life. Let me say it again. Mark is trying to show us as readers what the resurrection did in this person's life so that we can do the, it can do the same thing in your life and in my life. And so when he refers to the angel as a young man, he's using a literary device to bring us into the story so that we'll see ourselves in the story. Okay? So here's what he says. They saw a young man. The only other time we see the, this word or this phrase, young man, it's actually just one word in the Greek. The only other time we see that word used is in all, in all of his gospel is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in the garden. He is praying. Remember, the crucifixion hasn't happened yet. He's going to the garden to try to convince his Father in heaven that if there's another possibility of not having to drink the cup, that he has to drink, that he'd like to have it passed uh, on so that he hasn't, doesn't have to go through it. And he, three times he asks the Father, if this cup can be passed, I ask you to do it, but not my will, but your will. Finally, he realizes that his Father is requiring him to go through this, and so he uh, he, he's done praying. He's now ready to go out of the garden. And that's when Judas shows up. And he's carrying, he's, he's behind or he's, he's leading a group of soldiers, not only Roman soldiers, but also temple guards. And I mean, that was a large group because what the Bible tells us is that was a cohort of Roman soldiers. What's a cohort? It's one-tenth of a Roman legion. So if a Roman legion was anywhere between 2,500 to 6,000 uh, soldiers, we're talking about somewhere between 250 and 600 Roman soldiers, not, let alone having the, the temple guard there as well. So Jesus is not getting away. And he knows it. And he's really not trying to get away. But Peter is thinking, maybe I can break through and I can defend my Lord. And Jesus said, put away your spears, uh, Peter. You're going to get us all killed. And so he just tells him to put it down. And then it says this in Mark 14, 50. And everyone deserted him and fled. The soldiers are there. Judas is there. Jesus is there. And the disciples all flee away. They all run away. And then Mark includes this. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. Now, we don't know who this is. We don't even know his name. We don't, we, it's not a disciple because they all ran away already. So this young man is there. He's just a young man wearing linen cloth. And it says, and they seized him, 
but he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Now, what in the world is going on here? I mean, doesn't that seem strange that Mark would include that? I mean, and, and why does Mark include the story about the young man who had this unfortunate wardrobe malfunction? Why does he include that? Why is it there? It's not included in Matthew. It's not included in Luke. It's not included in John. The only one who includes this is Mark. And it tells us that he was following Jesus wearing nothing on but a linen cloth. And when he was seized by the soldiers, as he escaped from them, he had to leave behind the linen cloth he was wearing and he ran away naked. Why does Mark share this item with us in his story? Why would he even want us to know that? Because as I said, he, he's working on a theological uh, point for us to really grasp. The young man ran away naked. You know, nakedness in the Bible is always shameful. After Adam and Eve sinned, they realized that they were naked. After Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God because they felt the shame of their nakedness. When Adam and Eve hid, hid, uh, sinned, they were naked and they tried to cover their nakedness. And so nakedness is always something because they felt the shame of it. It's always something that was uh, disgraceful and shameful. And so why is this young man here? Because he's, he is showing the shamefulness of him running away into the darkness. And it's really, when this young man flees from Jesus in his nakedness, it really highlights the shamefulness of the disciples themselves who ran and abandoned Jesus at this time. It's really used to de demonstrate the shamefulness and the disgracefulness of what the disciples did when they ran from Jesus. Here's the other thing that Mark tells us about this young man, that he was only wearing a linen cloth. In fact, two times, remember, two times in the account, Mark makes reference to a linen cloth. He said he had nothing on but the linen cloth, and he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Now, let me show you the other place that Mark uses the term linen cloth. Again, he'll only use it in these two places, but he uses it another time. It's found in Mark 15, 46, and here's what it says. So Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen cloth, and placed it in the tomb cut out of rock. And so what we have is linen cloth used two times in two different chapters. Chapter 14, where the young man is left behind the linen cloth and fled in his shameful nakedness. And two times in Mark 15, where Jesus was wrapped in the linen cloth after his shameful death. I mean, I don't know if you see what Mark is doing, but he's making a point, and th that is this, that our Lord was wrapped in the linen cloth of the shamefulness, of the sinfulness and the disgracefulness of fleeing from him, in the shamefulness of our own sinfulness, that he got wrapped in that as he was laid in the tomb, in that sinfulness. Isaiah 53 says it clearly, doesn't it? It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to an own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, symbolically, when Jesus was put in the tomb, he was wrapped in the linen cloth of our shameful sin. 
And the shame of our sinfulness was put on him because he was wrapped on him. See, that happened crucifixion night that Jesus took on the shamefulness of our own sin. And that was this young man on crucifixion night. But now we meet this young man, and that's not crucifixion night. Now it's resurrection morning. And what do we see? We see a young man, he's no longer wrapped in linen cloth, but now he's dressed in a white robe. And now he's not fleeing from Jesus, but he's sitting at the right side of where Jesus had laid in a place of blessing. And now it's not darkness, now it's morning. I mean, look what it says. And entering the tomb, the women saw the young man sitting on the right side. Why the right side? Because that was a place of honor. The right side to the king is always a place of honor. The right side of God is always a place of honor. And so he's sitting in the place of honor. And what is he wearing? He's wearing a white robe. He's not wearing the linen cloth. He's dressed in a white robe. And get this. There's only one other place in Mark's gospel that he talks about somebody wearing a white robe. And it's Jesus. When he's transfigured up on the Mount of Transfiguration before James and John and Peter. And they see him in the glory of what he really wears. And in glory, he wears the white robe of his righteousness. And that was blazing the bright brightness and the, and the whiteness of that was shining forth. And, and Mark, you remember, said it was so bright, it was so white that it was whiter than anything could bleach it. And now they saw this young man sitting, dressed in a white robe. I mean, you've got to be putting this together. What Mark is showing us is that the transformation transfiguration that takes place in Jesus is a transfiguration that takes place in our lives as well because of Jesus. In other words, when we talk about the power of the resurrection, we have to talk about it of the power and what it does in our lives as well. And Mark is showing us a picture of that. The resurrection moved him, this young man, from fleeing in the darkness to sitting in the light. The resurrection moved him from running away in shame because of his nakedness to now sitting in honor. The resurrection moved him away from wearing linen cloth to now being dressed in the robe of righteousness. The resurrection did all of that for this young man. And that's what Mark is wanting us to know. Jesus, who through his own resurrection power was brought up by the Father, now unleashes that same resurrection power for us so that we can be completely new people. And that's why Paul will say later on in 2 Corinthians, he'll say, um, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. And so as we gather here to celebrate the resurrection today, you know what, I hope that you're just not here to celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It's way bigger than that. We're celebrating the fact that power was unleashed at that resurrection that not only transformed our Lord, but transforms us as well. And just like that resurrection for that young man, we too go from darkness into light. We too move from shame into honor. We move from being clothed in disgrace to wearing a robe of glorious righteousness. We've been moved from having no place in the kingdom to where we're sitting in a place of blessing. 
I mean, this is the Jesus that Mark wants us to know. This is the Jesus that Mark wants us to experience. The Jesus who unleashed the power of God to change our lives to the point where we have become whole new creatures, never been like this before. And the question that I think Mark leaves with us is this. Same question that I'll leave with you today. Is that young man in the story, are you willing to be that young man in the story? Does that describe who you are? Have you been transformed by the power of the resurrection? Because all of us have the possibility of seeing ourselves as that young man, not fleeing in darkness, but now sitting in light. Not clothed in our own filthy rags, but now wearing the garment of our Lord's righteousness. Not having no place in the kingdom, but now being seated in the table with our Lord. And today, all that's possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. All that happened because Jesus was raised from the dead. And John or, and Mark wants you to know that if you know the real Jesus, you're this young man in the story with a hope of eternal life with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we celebrate you today and the work that your son Jesus Christ did for us. And Father, I hope that every single one of us here today can understand what had happened to us because of what you did for your son and how we have now been changed as well and that we don't walk in the darkness of this world, but we walk in the glorious presence of your light. And we don't have to fear the shame of our own nakedness before you, but we know that you will clothe us in the righteousness of your garments and your holiness. And we know that you will not cast us out from your presence, but you will welcome us into your kingdom and sit us right beside you for all of eternity. Father, it's because your Son, our Lord, was raised from the dead. Thank you for how Mark shared this wonderful truth with us today. We praise you for that. We celebrate you and your resurrection. Amen.